This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. Eugene Bratton was a member of the Royal Irish Constabulary, stationed in Navan, County Meath, from 1910. Policing in Ireland at that time was generally uneventful, however that changed with the first whisperings of war in Europe and the inception of the Irish Volunteers in 1913. Civil unrest in Ireland began with the lockout and continued until it erupted in the Easter Rising in 1916. Bratton experienced firsthand the Battle of Ashburn, which was the only successful engagement for the rebels during Easter week. The Fingal Battalion of the Volunteers had a relatively successful week, executing raids on RIC barracks and sabotaging railway lines before disappearing back into the countryside. This guerrilla style of warfare contrasted with the rebels' more defensive tactics in Dublin, where they occupied buildings and waited to be attacked, in effect waiting to be defeated. The Fingal Battalion's week culminated in the Battle of Ashburn, in which they laid siege to an RIC barracks. Bratton was called to the scene, along with backup from Navan Station. When we approached the barracks at Ashburn, all the cars stopped. The men jumped out and took cover. Well, there was no shooting at this time, and this didn't start until a brief space of time had elapsed. Sergeant Shanaher was the first man to fall. He was shot through the heart. He'd taken cover at this time. There was a feeling afterwards that this sergeant was shot by one of his own men. He was a bad one and had been very tough on the men. He was never satisfied and was always cribbing and grumbling at them. Firing was continuous and general by now. I wasn't armed and in civilian clothes. After some time I moved back towards Kilmoon and uh, after travelling about 200 yards I was held up by a party of rebels who were behind the road ditch in our rear. Just at this moment a volley was fired in our direction. The rebels ducked for cover and I ducked too and out of that position showing them a clean pair of heels. When I arrived back at the scene of the fighting, the first thing I saw was the DI's whistle on the road. I knew then that all was up with him. The next thing I saw was the dead bodies of seven of our men on the side of the road. I went further down and I saw Tom Ash. He had a revolver in his hand and had his men under control. The wounded constables, who numbered, I think, about... 13, were being attended to by Dr Hayes, who was a member of Tom Ash's party. Our cars were still in the same position, but were badly shot up. I told Tom Ash I wanted to bring home the DI's body, and he agreed and made arrangements for me to do so. The remainder of the police were prisoners at this time. I got the DI's body into the car and travelled back to his house outside Navan with it, where I handed it over to his unfortunate wife. As far as I can remember, Mrs Smith had no previous knowledge of the death of her husband until I arrived. Subsequent to the Battle of Ashburn, I was brought to Buckingham Palace and decorated by the King for my actions. I resented this, but I had no alternative. It's clear that Tom Ash had some level of respect for the RIC men he defeated in battle allowing Bratton to remove the body of the district inspector. As the dead and wounded were taken away, Ash paraded the remaining policemen and warned them never to take up arms against the Republic again. He then pardoned them and allowed them to leave. 
Despite their successful week, when the Rising was put down in Dublin, the Fingal Battalion surrendered to Crown forces. After the Rising had died down, there was nothing of note took place until the Conscription Act for Ireland was passed in the English House of Commons. As far as I can remember, the police resented this to a man, and I believe that had an attempt been made to enforce it, the police would not have done it. Tom Ash died on hunger strike the following year, the first rebel leader to die since the executions that followed the Rising. His second-in-command, Richard Mulcahy, survived, however, and as Chief of Staff of the IRA during the War of Independence, he developed the guerrilla tactics used by the Fingal Battalion to eventually force the British into a truce. Bratton's life returned to normality until the War of Independence broke out. Trim RIC Barracks was captured by the IRA on the 26th of September 1920. They were helped from inside, a door which leads onto the fair green being left open for them. Constable Meehan, now a superintendent in the Civic Guards at Grenard, was responsible for this. This took place on a Sunday morning and on that night the tans from Gormanston burned the town of Trim. This was a purely black and tan job. The following day I drove D.I. Rowland to Trim to visit the scene. The fires had now died down but were still smouldering. It was a horrible sight to see. Constable Grey, who was with us when he saw it, said, To hell with this. And that day, he resigned. Bratton's view on the conflict was changed by the arrival of the Black and Tans into the country. The RIC were required to work with this auxiliary police force, although many, Bratton included, found them to be thugs and were disgusted by the atrocities they carried out. Bratton began passing information to the local IRA commander. There was a serious leakage of police messages from the post office in Navan. Paddy Dunn worked in the post office and he was able to decipher all messages going through. He let me see one of those messages one day which he had deciphered. To counteract this, Head Constable Queenan's daughter was put into the post office without any entrance examination or anything else. One day the postmaster, Mr Hodgett, pulled her up and chastised her for something she was doing. She became impertinent and said she would tell her daddy. A couple of nights afterwards, Mr Hodgett was taken from his house by three armed men in civilian clothes and shot and thrown into the river. Having conducted his own research into the incident and noted the farcical situation of the murderer himself conducting the official investigation, Bratton passed his findings on to the IRA. The county inspector's clerk, Sergeant McCarthy, conveyed to me that a court-martial had been held on me by the county inspector, the DI and a third officer in my absence, and that I had been sentenced to death. From then on, I always carried a small revolver in my sleeve, as well as my service Webley in my belt. A week passed by, and one night the county inspector Egan brought a few of the tans into the canteen and set them drunk. I was in a bedroom over the canteen. I could hear the voices underneath me and I and hear my name being mentioned. After a few minutes I heard footsteps coming up the passage to my room. I took up my revolver and fully cocked it. One of the tans opened the door and just entered the room with his Webley revolver in his hand swinging by his thigh. I had my gun up and covering him. When the tan saw this he turned away. They did not try it again. The stress of Bratton's position and conflicting opinions began to take their toll on him. About a year before the truce, I wanted to resign from the force, but General Boylan of the IRA would not allow me. He sent word to me that I was to stay on, that I was more useful where I was. So I remained. 
Bratton was forced to continue to walk the fine line between his duties as a policeman and his beliefs as an Irishman as the conflict raged around him. He did manage to keep the balance and was a respected policeman in the community, as one incident showed. On my way to the barracks, I observed a crowd of young men on Blackwater Bridge. I didn't know what they were there for. I went to the barrack door, which was locked. This was never the case before. I couldn't get in for a long time. They evidently knew the ambush was there. I was questioned for a length of time before I was admitted. The door was opened on the chain and the head constable asked if there was anyone with me when he was satisfied there was no one, I was, I was let in. I was questioned, was there an ambush on my way down? I answered, I did meet a number of people but nothing more than would be seen on a Sunday evening. I came to the conclusion that they had first-hand information concerning the ambush from a spy or an informer. I was asked by the head constable if, if there were any people on the bridge. I said there was nothing more than you would expect on a Sunday evening. When I stayed there a while and smoked, I, I returned home. I found out afterwards that the order the IRA had that night was to shoot the first policeman who passed along in order to draw the police from barracks. When I was approaching the ambush, Paddy O'Brien had his head out Walter's window and he said, Here's Bratton coming, with the result that I passed through to the barracks. Bratton narrowly avoided a grisly fate on that day and managed to survive the war. Many of his comrades did not. When the truce came, the officers of the RIC were almost crying. They realised that their good days were over. They were kings in their own areas. The ordinary rank and file of the RIC were generally pleased that Ireland at last had succeeded in getting somewhere. As far as the Black and Tans were concerned... They did not give a damn. They were soldiers of fortune. With the truce came the disbandment of the RIC and the establishment of Angarda Siakana. Eugene Bratton ends his story here. More difficult years were to come for the police forces in Ireland when the civil war pitched Irishman against Irishman again. For more on the Battle of Ashburn, go to www.storiesfrom1916.com or listen to the 17th podcast in this series which views the battle through the eyes of a civilian onlooker. I'm Owen Cody. Thanks for listening.